everybody. It's that time of the week. Welcome to Inside EMS. I'm your host, Kelly Grayson, and sitting in the chair to my right, the boss, the big kahuna, the big cheese himself, Greg Freese, ably subbing in for our co-host, Chris Ceballero, who is out with the flu. Welcome to Inside EMS, Greg. Hey, Kelly, it's always good to be a part of the conversation. Uh, I'm sending best wishes to uh, Chris. I know as uh, he gets older, he's got to take any sort of set of uh, sniffles, body aches, uh, headaches seriously. Uh, so let's, uh, Chris, get healthy so you can uh, take the microphone back for me. Yeah, yeah. Praying, praying for Chris. I'm sending tots and pears uh, because uh, I've heard he's in a really bad way. He's laid up on the couch with a temperature of, of 98.7. So, uh, you know, it's pretty serious. Uh, yeah. We hope he gets back on his feet soon and uh, and recovers his voice. We got an interesting topic this week, Greg. It's uh, there was a, a thing that came out on EMS One, uh, a link to a study about diversity and inclusivity in CPR mannequins for uh, uh, um, for EMS and in, in healthcare classes and and. I've got my own thoughts on the issue. Uh, I, I kind of rolled my eyes at the study itself, but it does speak to a larger issue. Why don't you tell us about the, uh, about the study? Yeah, so thanks, Kelly. I think there's a, a, kind of three questions come to mind first for me. is like, one, is this something that should be studied? Two, you know, what were the methods and how they did this study? And then three, like, what do we do with the results? So this is a group um, that is in, I believe, uh, Queen's University in Canada looked at uh, Twitter and Instagram images posted by organizations in North and South America that teach CPR education. So uh, these are organizations that want to promote, you know, maybe it's hands-only CPR or people to take a class. And they found 211 images on social media in their study period. And they looked at what was the, um, you know, did those images represent uh, white or Caucasian people, uh, black or Asian people, or women, or even overweight people? And of course, you and I also know that there's mannequins that don't even represent any people. Mm -hmm. It might just be a, a kind of a gray head on a blue body or um, kind of just sort of a gray piece of uh, foam or something with a sort of face looking thing. So yeah. of course we see diversity in mannequins, but back to my first question, I actually think this was a thing to study um, PR uh, performance based on uh, social economic and, and racial or ethnic groups. And so trying to understand, well, well, why is that? Maybe it has something to do with, uh, um, you know, the, either the sort of uh, formal education programs or informal education programs like social media or public service announcements. So I'm actually glad that the researchers took this on. I also think the methodology of looking at social media posts uh, is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I'm sure we've had conversations on the podcast in the past about, you know, when we see um, poorly performed CPR, say on a television show or movie, or even, you know, kind of corny images used in social media posts. So I'm glad they took this on. You know, I, I had my own thoughts about the study and you know me, I'm, I'm the resident cynic. I, I, at first I just rolled my eyes so far I could see my own occipital lobe. Uh, you know, um, I, I think 
you know, the, the social media, a scanning social media posts for images, you know, um, I wouldn't have thought of that. I, I still have my doubts whether it's a, um, whether it's a, a good way to gather data. Uh, I think there's a whole lot of built-in bias uh, just from my experience with people who are on social media and it's the most isolated space for a rational discourse. You know, it's a, it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy where you have to be cautious, but um, yeah, you know, uh, but uh, and I really, I don't know that we have to study. We should study something like this. I, I, I'm my, the skeptic in me says, oh, my CPR mannequin doesn't look like me. I don't want to do CPR. Well, <laughs> I don't have any CPR mannequins that look like me. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, no CPR mannequin looks like me. None of them have legs and all of them have at least one less chin than I do. So uh -huh. is that going to make me less likely to perform CPR on someone? You know, I, I think this particular study just, just kind of riles me somewhat because I, I think it's a waste of time, but it does speak to, to me, to a larger issue in EMS and in society as, as a whole about, um, diversity and inclusivity in, in our profession. Um, you know, how often have we been in EMS collectively, Greg, what, 60 years or, or better? Um, and the vast majority of our coworkers are Caucasian and male. Uh, yeah. and, and, and <clears throat> but uh, the vast majority of our community is not necessarily that same demographic, you know? And, and I think that, that, EMS in the community uh, should resemble that community. And, and that's a bit of a problem in EMS. And how do we address uh, um, diversity and, and inclusivity in our profession so that we look like the people we're trying to serve? What do you think? Yeah, Kelly, it's probably worth acknowledging that there's people in the audience that might be rolling their eyes listening to two old white guys uh, yeah. talk about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, so the and, woke and, Southern redneck paramedic. <laughs> yeah. And the guy from flyover country here in Wisconsin. Um, the, the, you know, one of the things that's happened in simulation education over the last, you know, probably decade is, you know, sort of more variety in the sort of patients and, you know, maybe a patient, a SIM, I'm going to say SIM man, because that's the brand I know, but mm -hmm. SIM patient uh, that's maybe older or overweight, or uh, female gendered versus male gendered, um, you know, children, uh, different uh, skin tones are available, I believe, in, in patient simulators. Uh, so, you, you know, it's probably also interesting, I would want to know about the history of um, CPR mannequins. I first trained on, I guess, the Recessa Annie, uh, clearly, uh, you know, meant to to indicate like, oh, this is a female, but you know, how much of uh, mannequin design was initially influenced by like, well, what can fit in a suitcase? Uh, what can we mass produce? Uh, what materials are available? And probably also reflected the people that were designing uh, those products and probably heavily influenced by, you know, the people that were initially teaching principles of CPR and then CPR education, mm -hmm. uh, largely white men at the forefront there. So, you know, we evolve, times change. I think this investigation, it's worthwhile to consider um, 
you know, doing this. And, you know, my question to you, Kelly, you know, you're an educator, you probably have advised uh, colleges or different types of education programs on equipment to purchase, you know, with this information in hand, what would you do with it as an educator? Um, I would, well, it's interesting to, to, to note that first of all, the knowing the origins of, of where these mannequins came about is, is kind of instructive. Uh, you know, uh, we, we know that, uh, or we younger people may not appreciate that, that, uh, all CPR mannequins tend to look alike because they were all, uh, based on the, the death mask of a, a drowning victim in Norway, you know, and okay. Asman, Asman Lairdahl, uh, designed the first CPR mannequin. The face of Recessi Ann was, a was the death mask of a drowning victim, uh, that, uh, they fished out of the river in Norway and, and, uh, told in a social media thread the other day uh, was something else that I didn't know is that, that uh, most of your resuscitation mannequins were, um, uh, were uh, clothed in, in zip up jogging suits as a, uh, right. as a, a nod to uh, Dr. Peter Safar, who, uh, who was, I believe, um, paying homage to his sister or whatever, who, who uh, was a jogger or something, something along those lines. Oh. But all of that came about from a, a very uh, um, Caucasian Norwegian thing. So that's why right. CPR mannequins look that way because they they all copied the same original uh, uh, their same original design. I suppose if I were telling a uh, a college or university or program to to buy equipment, I would say. Um, uh, don't specifically go out and buy equipment in, in new skin tones. Uh, but when you reorder equipment and when you purchase new equipment, um, do that in mind of, of the, the uh, students, uh, the student body that you have. Make sure that it looks like the, the people in your classrooms. So um, I don't think it's necessary that we go out and replace our, our, our honky mannequins with, with uh, people, uh, mannequins of color. <laughs> but I do think that uh, as mannequins wear out and as we purchase new equipment, or as we purchase new faces and that sort of thing, that, you know, you need to be sensitive and you need to make sure that those things, they don't cost any extra to, to order mannequins with, with different uh, ethnic skin tones. Uh, by all means, go out and, and make sure that the, the equipment that your students are working on looks somewhat like them. Um, yeah. uh, you know, as far as simulation and realism, uh, the day we can make mannequins that, that, that smell and feel like humans is, uh, is going to be a, a bad day and, and, and a good day, I suppose. Um, you know, no mannequin really looks like a, a human being unless it's, unless it's the, the seven sigma airway mannequins, which are like freakily realistic, you know, and, and yeah. uh, those things are, are, are pretty awesome. Yeah, I would say that, that it's not a bad thing to go out and, and get the, the mannequins in, in the appropriate skin tone. But I think that a larger thing that we need to consider, uh, aside from just the equipment we train on, is our personal outlook and, and the way we conduct ourselves as advocates and educators. You know, and, and I myself, I come from a uh, 
from a Southern uh, conservative background. Uh, I'm a, a proud and, and uh, proud and militant redneck, uh, but uh, well, well, I'll say Southern boy. Um, Southern boys and rednecks look very similar, but uh, they they act a bit differently. Um, so I have to constantly remind myself that that my upbringing and and my paradigm for how I talk to people and how I view the world is colored. Uh, to to uh, steal a phrase is, is colored by my experience and my upbringing, and not everybody grew up the same way. So right. I, I have to constantly remind myself that that other people don't see the world as I do, uh, and to be sensitive of that fact and and kind of uh, watch my speech, watch my mannerisms to make sure that everyone uh, uh, feels included and, and welcome in my class. I think that is the more important thing than than an inanimate piece of equipment. Uh, I think that's a really good point, Kelly. If uh, if the students in the class don't feel like the instructor uh, respects them, uh, you know, has some basic understanding or empathy for their life experiences, it's not going to matter what type of equipment is in the classroom. You know, if if the instructor is a fantastic teacher um, and, you know, cares about the students and the students know that they're cared for and the instructor is uh, looking out for them, you know, that instructor is going to be successful with like a stick and a paper bag and is going to be able to teach those students EMS uh, or at least CPR. I do want to come back to I I thought it was noteworthy that you mentioned uh, learning about Dr. Safar from a social media post. And that, uh, to me, kind of helps me go full circle to the uh, the study in that, um, you know, social media posts can be instructive and uh, help people learn knowledge or potentially even skills or at least plant a seed uh, that might make them think like, oh, I could perform uh, chest compressions on a loved one maybe even because I saw mm-hmm. a mannequin that maybe just in its skin tone uh, looked like my loved one or a stranger that I, I might see on the street. And, you know, for us to achieve uh, high levels of ROSC in our communities, you know, we need friends and families and bystanders uh, to start chest compressions before EMS arrives. Yeah. And, and, and that's true. And, and, you know, I, I look at social media from a uh, defiantly cynical standpoint. I have, uh, um, you know, uh, I think that, that there's tremendous potential in social media uh, to, to spread that message of diversity and inclusivity. Um, the problem is that social media rarely lives up to its potential. Uh, yep. Mostly what we do is uh, we look at porn and argue about things and look at cat pictures or argue about cat porn. <laughs> it's, you know, it's rarely, rarely lives up to its potential. Uh, it's, it's most often anti-social media. Um, and, and therein lies the, the problem and my, my skepticism of it. Um, but I, w- I want to shift the conversation a little bit about how yeah. we as people um, and, and educators and, and advocates um, need to tell untold stories and, and uh, uh, about uh, inclusivity. And one of the things that comes to mind is uh, Kevin Hazard's new book, American oh, Silence. Yeah. 
Um, if you haven't read American Sirens, folks, I, I urge you to go out and get it. But it tells the story of Freedom House paramedics um, in Pittsburgh. And uh, if you're not familiar with Freedom House paramedics, basically they, they went to the black communities and educated people from those communities uh, as paramedics to take care of their own community. And they were some of the most, uh, some of the first paramedics in America and, and a storied tradition uh, at Freedom House uh, of black paramedics. And not just, I just don't want to, I don't want to relegate them to just an ethnicity. There were paramedics taking care of their own community in a time where black people were not welcomed in, in many, many communities in America. Uh, and I think that's a, a very inspirational story uh, and instructive about, uh, about what is, uh, you know, instructive about the nobility of the human spirit and how we can uh, overcome a whole lot of, a uh, whole lot of bad upbringing and, and, uh, <clears throat> and biases and stuff just in their story. Yeah, I haven't read uh, Kevin's new book yet. I'm certainly looking forward to it. I am familiar with the uh, story uh, and glad that uh, Kevin, uh, through the eyes of the paramedic, has, has captured that uh, bit of history and uh, brought it to the world. Um, you know, really looking forward to that. You know, Kelly, we should do another episode just about uh, what we think makes a great EMS book. Yeah, um, yeah. You know? Uh, can I have a, a final thought on this one and then yeah, I'll let you yeah. bring us home? You know, um, the, you know, my, I, I guess my social media use uh, in recent years, what I've been doing is mostly following organizations and uh, I'm regularly pleased to see posts that announce, you know, new classes of EMTs or, you know, we've graduated these people from, EMT or paramedic academy, uh, or from the field training program. And, you know, I'm regularly, uh, just impressed to see the diversity among applicants, at least what I can see in a simple picture of, uh, racial or ethnic diversity as well as gender diversity. And I think change is coming into the ranks of EMS, or at least in the examples I'm seeing in the social media. And there's certainly other dimensions of diversity that, you know, we can't measure uh, from just looking at a picture. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited and positive about the trend for our workforce and, and looking forward to what the years are, are ahead. So, Kelly, thanks for discussing this um, mannequin uh, research uh, with me. You know, uh, wrap us up here, as uh, Sebolero might say. Yeah, I, I would I would say that you know the times they are changing and the demographic of, of people who who go through EMT class has long been evolving. Um, you know, in the last few years, uh, the the uh, demographic of people who take my EMT classes has changed dramatically. You know, I go from from sitting in a firehouse and teaching a bunch of guys with handlebar mustaches and and uh, uh, high testosterone counts EMS to teaching in high school EMS and I'm teaching the vast majority are young black women. Uh, and oh, wow. they are, they're both enthusiastic and pretty damn sassy. And they let me know pretty quick that, uh, there's a generation gap 
that I get, you know, it's not a, it's not a white black thing. I'm just an old dude that doesn't get, <laughs> doesn't get young references. So I, I'm have I'm having to, to, uh, to catch up and, and study, study the, the, uh, the new urban dictionary to make sure that uh, all my pop culture references are relevant to someone who's 16 years old. Uh, I get tired yeah. of people saying who was, who was Mel Brooks. Uh, <laughs> uh so there's a two-way street there. I'm filling those gaping holes in their pop culture education and showing them the 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 niceties of uh, Mel Brooks and Monty Python, and they're catching me up with the 20th century and and how to talk to young people. Um, Great. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What are you doing in your educational programs? What are you doing in your agency to attract? more ethnically diverse members does your agency look like the community you serve we'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com and for myself and co-host greg freeze seven for chris sabalero this week thanks for tuning in to inside ems we're going to catch you guys next week